This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. NAFTA renegotiations are set to begin in 30 days from now. Uh, the question is, what can we expect to see the United States ask for as the United States has yet to put forth uh, their wish list? But that has to come soon um, a- a- as a condition of their own uh, laws in the United States when it comes to uh, the involvement of, of, uh, of politicians and in, in lawmakers in the United States. And as we all know, you know, when it comes to President Donald Trump, uh, you know, one day is not the same as the next. One day he's talking about, you know, wanting NAFTA scrap. The next day the Prime Minister of Canada visits him and he says, oh, we just want a few minor tweaks. And then, you know, and then you've got other opinions the next day and the day after that. There's only one guy to uh, contact when you want to straighten things out, and that's uh, Ian Lee, who's a professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. And uh, Ian, welcome back to the program. Nice to talk to you again. My pleasure. So um, the first question I would have for you is um, uh, explain for our audience what the the thing is about the wish list having to be in place 30 days ahead of negotiations. This is a this is a U.S. contained thing, but explain it to our yeah. listeners. Well, in simple terms, the president, when they're negotiating treaties um, in the states, I'm talking, mm-hmm. uh, seeks what's called fast track approval uh, because they've learned in the past from bitter experience that if they don't get fast track approval, which I'll explain in one moment, then the, the Congress can literally nitpick the proposed agreement that is negotiated clause by clause by clause. So as a consequence, what the Congress did was they agreed to a law initiated by a previous president saying, if when I seek fast-track authority, I want you to agree that when I submit that treaty to you, because all treaties must be approved by the Senate of the United States under their Constitution, that you'll approve it on an up-down vote, meaning yay or nay, not yes, but I want this and this and that clause renegotiated. So that's called fast track. And in exchange, what the Congress demanded said, okay, you want us to give up our ability to nitpick you to death, you want us to give you a yes or no up-down vote, then in exchange you must tell us before you enter negotiations what you're going to be demanding from the other country. So you must give us the big picture on what you're going to be negotiating so that then the Congress can influence the White House before the negotiations start if they think the negotiations are not aggressive enough or not going in the right direction or whatever. So it allows them to try to influence the negotiations before they even start from the U.S. side. All right. Now, uh, you, you know, we're waiting, the world is waiting yeah. for for this uh, wish list to come out and and uh, people are already betting on what would happen or not happen with Canada's yes. uh, response to, to that wish list. Let's, let's go from there. What might be on that thing? Um, I know there's a lot of concern, and I've expressed in the past, you know, because Trump is a, you know, he's a, he's a deal guy, and he wants to make a deal. He wants to, uh, and he's apparently a very tough negotiator. But straight to your question, I've been predicting for, I don't know how long now, six months or more, dairy has got to be at the top of the list. Now, a lot of Canadians may think, what's the big deal? Yeah, what is, yeah what's the... What? thousand dairy farmers in Canada. There's 36 million of us Canadians, and only 12,000 of us are dairy farmers, okay? Right. It's very, and they're rich. They're multimillionaires, <laughs> according to StatsCan. Yes, because of their land, and yes, because of the quotas, and yes, because of the barn buildings and the cows and so forth. 
but they are multi-millionaires. Net worth average $4 million. That's wow. That's Candida. But what they negotiated back in the father, Pierre Trudeau's 1971 administration, they got this sweetheart deal that almost no one else has in agriculture that gave them a protected market that keeps out all those pesky foreigners and all those pesky foreign competitors mm. and allows them to jack literally double the price in Canada. It's called supply management. Okay. Although it only affects a small number, it affects a large number of dairy farmers in Wisconsin, which was one of the states that put Donald Trump in the White House. Now you can see where I'm going. Right, it's payback time. Milk and cows and dairy farmers aren't very important to the vast majority of Americans or the vast majority of Canadians. It really is important in electoral politics in the electoral college. If Trump wants to get reelected, he's got to make those farmers in Wisconsin, which, by the way, has the second largest number of dairy cows in the entire United States of America. 1.7 milking dairy cows in one single state called Wisconsin. That's a lot of methane. That's a lot of methane. And by the way, New York State is another huge dairy cow state, and they, even though it's run by the Dems, the Democrats, they're completely on board with Donald Trump for saying, go after the Canadians on supply management and the dairy, the, the, cow, the, the milk industry. So I think it's going to be at pretty near the top of that list. Yeah, for um, for political reasons. So, okay, that I mean, are there any other reasons these guys do this? I mean, you'd like to think they're doing it for the good of uh, for the good of their various countries. But yeah. uh, if, if okay, so that so dairy will be close to the top. What what else uh, should we I be looking at? We're going to see. Uh, remember when NAFTA was negotiated, and I was a strong support. I was just starting my career as a professor when it was negotiated back in 1988. When it was just with the Americans, we called it the FTA, Free Trade Agreement. And then we included Mexico in 93 and, and brought them in. But digital industries and intellectual property has changed. First off, the word no one digital industries in 1993. Right. And so they want to update that to cover off all the stuff for companies like Netflix and Amazon and, and on and on. And, and also the, uh, the whole IP, the question of intellectual property, which may sound really boring and most people, you know, their eyes glaze over. But we're talking about things like the value of patents and how long they're good for, copyright, you know, the protection of a singer who creates a song that's a right. big hit, uh, how the song is used and used by commercial jingles and, you know, all that stuff. So I think that that's going to be on the list. They want to enhance the protection uh, for uh, copyright and intellectual property. And, uh, and uh, as I said, the digital industries will be on that. And the third one, I think, and this will actually, I think, appeal to Canadians. He's been talking a lot about increasing... The Canadian, excuse me, the North American content uh, for the auto section of NAFTA. That is to say, uh, you can bring in an awful lot of foreign stuff in a car and still classify it for uh, the purposes of NAFTA as a domestically produced vehicle. But he wants to increase the content, the domestic content, which I think will be supported by the auto workers in both Canada uh, and the United States because they've been asking for that independently. Yeah, and that doesn't sound like a half bad idea. No, um, no, at no. Fa- at face value, if if that's going to um, you know it, it potentially increase uh, auto parts manufacturing uh, domestically on both sides of the forty ninth, exactly. and yes. I don't know if that can be deemed as a bad thing at all. But no. um, I guess the, I guess as always, uh, Ian, with um, with Donald Trump, it's 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 always a 
um, that today is today and tomorrow's tomorrow. And, um, you know, his administration seems to have nothing but inconsistencies when it comes to, uh, uh, to message, certainly, um, on detail of message. And, and this is, you know, in the past, he's, Trump has come out beating the drum loudly, saying, no, we, this, this deal sucks for the United States. We have to make it work for the United States. Now we got Pence, the vice president, saying uh, at an event recently, no, no, we want it to be win, win, win. It just, what do you believe? You know? I, I, I hear you, and I, and I do agree he's been uh, you know, inconsistent and contradictory and so forth. Having said that, uh, I, I, I think we can see a pattern in, in, in what's going on. I mean, he is very political. We do know that. We do know he won just barely by the skin in his teeth. Use that old-fashioned phrase. Yeah, yeah. He got into the White House by essentially seventy-seven thousand votes in three states. Uh, he just barely one of the closest elections in American history. Uh, he knows he's not popular right now. Every vote's going to count. So where am I going with all this? <laughs> he's going to go for the victories that he can brag about on the campaign trail when he goes out across the country giving his speeches. He wants very visible victories that he can go in each state, such as Wisconsin, and say to the farmers, the dairy farmers, I delivered for you. And so I think he's going to be looking for those kinds of victories that he can uh, declare very publicly and very loudly, where he can say, see those guys, those Mexicans or those Canadians were cheating in this area, and we fixed the problem. So wherever there's an instance and there are some instances. Most of our trade is free between the two countries, and we have no real problems. But as we all know, there's also a couple of irritants. One of them is softwood lumber. Another is telecom, because we won't let Verizon into Canada. Right. Another are the airlines. And then, of course, the dairy. So I think, and I don't think this is far-fetched for me to say this, he's going to go after, in, uh, in that announcement today or tomorrow, those areas where we are doing some form of protection for our economy, so then he can hit us and get us to back down, or at least that's his plan, and then he can declare victory in the months ahead, uh, especially in the off-year elections, which are coming up one year this November. That's when all 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives come up for re-election, and one-third of the Senate. So he wants to be able to go out there and be campaigning in those states saying, I delivered the bacon. Right. I delivered for you. I stood up to the Mexicans where they protected them, uh, uh, stopped our goods from going in. I stood up to the Canadians where they stopped our goods or our companies from going into their country. So I think that's what he's going to be going for, things where they're visible, where he can declare a victory and claim the political credit. All right. So, Ian, we've only got about 40 seconds left. Where does Mexico fit into all of this? We've talked about Canada, obviously, yeah. but where, where, what are the hot issues where Mexico is concerned in this agreement? Actually, I think Mexico has more risk than Canada, uh, much as we're worried, and properly so. But I, I don't think we have as much at risk because a lot of our trade with the U.S. is balanced. Uh, the trade with Mexico and the U.S., especially in autos, is much less balanced. And so I think that they're more at risk of having um, some kind of uh, uh, demands put on them to limit their imports, their exports to the United States, just as Ronald Reagan 30 years ago demanded the Japanese limit their exports of Toyota Zondas to Canada, to, to the United States. So I think that they are going to be hit harder in these negotiations with Donald Trump than Canada. Not to say that we're not going to get hit, but I think the Mexicans are going to get hit a lot harder. All right, Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University in our nation's capital. Uh, great uh, pleasure to chat with you as always. Thanks so much for this. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Bye for now. Great, bye. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Something that is not a big problem is the, the whole notion of, of breastfeeding. Yet, uh, one Ontario town uh, wants to, uh, quote, normalize breastfeeding. And, and, and I keep thinking, okay, um, I didn't know there was anything abnormal uh, about breastfeeding at all. Uh, what the city of Timmins is doing is they're, they're putting forward a campaign uh, where life-size cutouts are placed in restaurants, stores, and government buildings to normalize breastfeeding. Uh, the question is, is this a tactic that is actually going to work? And do people do people still get upset about women breastfeeding uh, in, in in anywhere? Uh, you know, are there still people out there that think, um, you know, you shouldn't be doing that here. You should go off to the ladies' room or go off to a back room somewhere and be segregated and, you know, have to do it there. Are there people still out there like that? Maybe maybe you're a breastfeeding mom that's that's run into that kind of a thing. Love to hear from you at 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Bring your uh, public breastfeeding stories uh, to the table. I, 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 it's funny. I just I, I, I laugh when I think that <clears throat> in 2017, breastfeeding could be considered anything other than normal. Uh, but joining us on the line to talk about it is Maureen Dennis. She's a, a mom of four. That's her first title. And her second title is parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca. Hi, Maureen. Hey, how are you doing? I'm, I'm great. Um, uh, t- th- breastfeeding being declared, well, not being declared abnormal, but the idea that it's not a normal thing, um, does that not give you some concern? Well, you know what, I, I, I wouldn't have guessed that 13 years after starting We Welcome, which was uh, originally a guide to baby welcoming places, places that would what would publicly declare that they would support nursing moms and provide a place for moms and dads to be able to change their babies. So that was in 2004 that I started this with my first child. And so we fast forward 13 years, and we still are having the same conversation there still are people who are giving brand new moms who, you know, if you've ever had a child, you know how much work it is to get out of the house and how important it is for new moms to get out of the house and to have that child start to cry and that panic within you to say, oh, my God, I just need to be able to feed them. And you sit down, you feed them, and you're doing your best, and you get that dirty look or you get someone approaching you um, asking you to remove yourself or go somewhere else. That's a pretty horrible experience yeah. for any new parent. So, you know, I, it, yeah, it still does happen. Who, who typically is the person that gives the dirty look, etc.? Can I, can I tell you what my stereotypical bias is in that regard, what I imagine that the person to be? And then you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I tend to think that it's older females from other generations who would be the most likely to cast criticism upon a, a, a woman breastfeeding their child in a public space. Would I be correct in that? You know what? I don't, I, I think that, that definitely I've had that happen. Um, there is, there is a generational thing. There's a cultural thing. Um, there is, I've had, you know, I, I breastfed all four children anywhere and 
everywhere you can think of. I even spoke on a panel while nursing my youngest. Um, I, so, you know, I've, I've kind of got looks from all different kinds of people. And, it, you know, the crazy thing is, is they would they rather the baby just keep screaming? Like, it's just well, being a child. How is that? I, I know, mean, and most moms do not want you to be looking at their breast right. either. So they're trying to be as discreet as possible. Right. And I think, I think that's, uh, you know, obviously the, more of a typical thing that, that women do not, in our society anyway, even though it's legal for them to do so, they do, they just generally don't want to have their breasts exposed. They're, they're pretty modest about it. They have blankets over themselves and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I, I still, I still don't, get it you know there are people who maureen i think uh, may see a a woman who's breastfeeding in public as somebody who's trying to get attention too which is also a totally insane notion that they're that they're trying to get attention that that they you know look at me i'm a mom look at me i can breastfeed you think there's some of that thinking out there you know there's so much shaming um in parenting right now no kidding there is you know, if you if you bottle feed some, uh, you know, some moms are embarrassed to bring out a bottle because they think that people are going to judge them for not breastfeeding. Um, you've got the, you know, the the um, parents who are who are, you know, basically any side of any issue you can think of. There's going to be extreme people, right? Um, in the in the area with breastfeeding is and the part that boggles my mind this many years later still is that you know there's there's just an easy easy way to deal with the uncomfortable moment possibly where you might you know lock eyes with someone who has their um, baby attached to their breast and that's just smile Smile yeah yeah walk away it's really simple people and you know what if you are a parent and you see that nursing mom just smile and keep going like you know don't you don't need to, that smile will change that woman's life for the day just to be, you know, you know you're supported and and that's that's what makes the difference. And that's where we need to go back to the village that supports and, and this interesting topic about the cutouts. Um, I don't know, I'm a little bit torn on it. Yes, I want it to be normalized, but I'd like it to be normalized by actual moms and babies. Instead of cardboard cutouts placed right. in uh, places. Yeah, that, that I, I like, I like that you know i like the 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 direction like they're going in yeah. Uh, yeah. but but can we not just you know can people not just do it <laughs> well I, all these stores that are, and restaurants and wherever that are welcoming these um cutouts i would love them to be more public about welcoming the actual moms and babies and and making an effort to have um you know, areas, and, and, you know, it comes in with dads and change areas, too. There's a lot of dads taking time, and they, there's no change tables in men's washrooms. Um, it's it's still not the most baby-welcoming world that yeah. we love it to be. One of the one of the things that I have, I have noticed as a parent um, it, it develop in the last, oh, I don't know, five or six years is, is the... Uh, the increasing number of what we would call family washrooms in in public spaces, whether that be um, rest stops or, or along the 400 series highways or or shopping malls, what have you, a room where you know y- you don't have to have the problem of um, of dividing everybody up and sending them to different rooms and worrying about whether they're okay and you know and and as you yeah. point out, there's a, a baby change center in there and. I think we're going to see more of that happening. It's it, it, it's at least a sign that 
that our thinking is changing and, and, and moving in the right direction. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Family washrooms are, are 100% a step in the right direction. Um, you know, and it doesn't, a lot of, a lot of places, you know, they don't need to have fancy setups for, for moms and babies to nurse, just a, a simple chair, knowing that, um, you know, if you're out in a community and you want to know that there's somewhere to go that, you know, while you're out for the afternoon, that is going to be just happy to see you and more than welcome to have you sit in that, in the chair in their store and, and, um, and nurse your baby. There, there are some amazing setups and different retailers that um, really understand that that is a moment where that mom just needs um, a quiet space to be able to feed their child. I mean, it's yeah. pretty simple. You, you said something uh, at the beginning of our conversation that I thought was uh, w- was a really good point. I want to come back to that. And, and that is that, you know, um, uh, women who have just had a baby, they, they, they want to get out. They, they need to get out and get among other people and, 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 you know, get, beat the cabin fever of being locked in the house kind of thing. And, and I would imagine that that, and that's, uh, that's, you know, that's clinically proven to be, um, uh, valued, uh, by the, or clinically uh, proven to be important to the mother and the baby. And I would think more importantly, so perhaps in the case of new mothers, uh, mothers have had, this is their first baby. Um, it's even more important to support them, right? Oh, a hundred percent. It's honestly, um, it, it's, it's, you know, postpartum depression is a, is a very real thing. Um, and one of the things that can help any new mom is having community and having friends and getting out and socializing and having, um, you know, a community who's supportive and that she can um, get out with. And so that's where We Welcome came from because I, I was fortunate enough to have a mom's group and every single week, rain, snow, anything, we made sure that we got together and we would go, That we were in um, Blair West Village at the time, and we would go out and we would go to the same places that we knew wouldn't be terrified by the look of this parade of moms and babies and strollers coming towards their, you know, coffee shop or their store. And, um, and those places, you know, they were, they were an oasis of calm and community for us. And so from there, we took that to be we welcome um, across Canada where moms would share those places that welcome them. And then you started to see more moms start to get out and more moms, um, you know, building these groups. And, you know, it's there's dads, dads groups, lots of dads groups, too. Um, but it's really important that you make that effort as a new parent to find those people. And that can be the hardest, hardest part. When I had my first child... Um, I was the first of my friends to have a baby. So I didn't know anybody else with a baby. Right. And so you really have to, um, you know, take that effort. And it can be, you know, and then with my second child, I remember asking a friend, how do you go grocery shopping with a toddler and an if- infant? <laughs> she laughed in my face and said, you don't. Um, <laughs> or the answer is with so great difficulty. Answer. Exactly. Well, you, as soon as you put the car seat in the <laughs> shopping cart, it's full. Um, but you know what? You start to you start to get out in those little trips and those little walks. Those are the things that start to make you feel more confident and and you know make you feel better just getting out and getting some fresh air and, and interacting with people and it builds your confidence as a parent um, to where then you're like, hey, you know what? We might actually be able to uh, take a road trip or maybe venture on an airplane. Air travel with children is a whole other topic. <laughs> oh, is it ever? We could do a whole three-hour talk show just on... We certainly 
definitely could. On that, are you kidding what me? What form of travel would you like to discuss? Yeah, no, it's a whole, it's a whole <laughs> other thing. So it can be very intimidating because the world is not a terribly welcoming place to to families. Um, when you start to look into those different. You know, different adventures that you're going to go on every day. Yeah, but in, in bringing it right back to where we started, you, you know, people have got to, if you haven't already, get your head around the whole notion that uh, breastfeeding is a normal, natural thing, and so is, uh, you know, passing by a woman, perhaps sitting on a, a bench in in the mall. Um, breastfeeding their child, and as you said, just smile and keep on walking. Like, Absolutely. relax. But- you know, it, it's it, the worst is it's a nipple, and <laughs> we all got one. So, in fact, most of us have two. Some have three, so. I'm told. So, anyway, apparently, apparently. There, there you go. Maureen Dennis, uh, parenting expert, founder of We W E E We Welcome dot uh, Check out uh, the website and uh, thanks here for your time this afternoon. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye for now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're talking about artificial sweeteners and diet soda and consumption of calories and, oh, the diet information and the food information and the consumption information gets so confusing, doesn't it? You don't know what to do. You don't know what to eat. You don't know how much of it to eat. Everybody, everybody will tell you you're eating the wrong thing. You should be eating this for that. You gotta, you know, you gotta eat for your specific metabolism. You gotta, you know, don't eat that. That's terrible. Don't eat it, and don't eat that at this time of day. It gets really nuts. Anyway, um, the latest information uh, that's coming forward is about consumers, you know, taking a second thought about relying on artificial sweeteners as some sort of panacea for weight loss. And um, it's just, we're just seeing more and more information coming forward that artificial sweeteners are not really a great thing for anybody. Uh, People are increasingly consuming artificial sweeteners such as aspartame and sucralose, as well as the uh, non-nutritive sweetener um, steviocide derived from the stevia plant, I think that's in the green Coca-Cola that's on the shelves. Um, The sweeteners are widespread in food and drinks, including diet soda, yogurt, sauces, uh, dressings, uh, and baked goods. And there's thinking now that uh, artificial sweeteners may actually play a contributing factor in increasing people's obesity or pushing them more toward diabetes than than uh, than we than we've thought. I mean, we've been sitting here thinking, well, zero calories, uh, isn't that a good thing? Uh, but people are consuming oftentimes more calories uh, as a result of thinking, well, you know, I had the diet soda and there's zero calories in that, so I can go and down another Mars bar. <laughs> so th- th- there's all kinds of. Um, there's all kinds of thinking in this, and I still feel, and we're going to bring our expert on in a second. I still feel like the tail is wagging the dog when it comes to food consumption in North American society. I still feel like big big food is controlling us and not the other way around. That we still are not in control of our food intake, um, primarily because of the way food is marketed to us in Canada and the United States. I mean, one thing that I'm happy to see is calorie counts go up on 
on boards at fast food places and restaurants. I I think I think that that's a start. That's that's probably to my mind's eye the most significant forward development maybe ever in my life. Besides the beside them, you know, uh, labeling food with a nutritional content. And my understanding too is that um, we're not too far away from a complete overhaul of the uh, of the Canada Food Guide. Uh, too. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's bring on our expert, Shannon Crocker, who's a registered dietitian nutritionist at shannoncrocker.com. And she's a frequent guest on the Dr. Danielle show as well, Saturday mornings from 10 to 11 here on 900 CHML. Shannon, good to have you back. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me on with you. So you've heard a lot of my, you know, rambling there, starting with um, artificial sweeteners, which is really where we we come in. In Monday's issue of uh, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, researchers, um, uh, you know, make their observational uh, their observations on studies of more than four hundred thousand people in the general population that they looked at for for about a decade, um, and basically they found that there may be some, uh, you know, there may be some connection between artificial sweeteners and an, and an increase, perhaps, in diabetes and weight gain. Right. Well, Jamie, they actually looked at two different types of studies. So they looked at um, small studies with a a short follow-up, about six months. Those are randomized control studies, and those are considered like the gold standard in terms of research. Those studies found that um, regular drinking of of diet pops and intake of non-nutritive sweeteners, like you listed, are not associated with weight loss. So if people are using those products, thinking, you know, I'm going to have a diet pop as a way of losing weight, research does not show that that's actually beneficial and helpful. And in fact, those large observational studies that that you mentioned, where they followed um, people up to um, over 10 years, they were looking at um, about 30 studies, uh, they found that there may actually be modest long-term increases in in weight and in body mass index and weight circumference or waist circumference as well as um, metabolic syndrome, which is increases in triglycerides or blood cholesterol and blood sugars. So there there's two different things there. One, they're not helping with weight loss, and two, they might actually be causing weight gain. Right, and and in the answers uh, to why they would be causing weight gain. Um, still need to be uh, examined and dug into a little a little deeper. I mean, there's the there's the common sense kind of uh, conclusion that people would draw that you know people will trade off calories in a soda a drink and and you know replace it with uh, calories other empty calories, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things the author said is that the research does need to be interpreted with caution because observational studies don't show a cause. They don't tell us why this is happening, and they don't definitely say that, you know, diet soda is causing weight gain. They're, they're saying there's an association there. But and there's several different theories about why this might be happening. And one is exactly what you said. People compensate by eating more. They think, oh, I'm having a diet pop, therefore I'm going to have the extra piece of chocolate cake later on. Yeah. Um, two, it could be that actually there's something in the non-nutritive sweeteners that's working with your brain signaling and causing us to crave more highly um, sweet foods and, you know, limiting our satisfaction. So it's making us want more. Right. Another option is um, a biological theory in that um, our body's responding as though this artificially sweetened food is sugar, but it's getting confused because there's actually no calories there. So that somehow is playing around with our metabolism and that might be causing an increase in weight gain. 
And, and the newest theory actually is around looking at our gut bacteria and that artificial sweeteners, non-nutritive sweeteners, may be influencing the gut um, microbiome or all the different bacteria, the good bacteria and the bad bacteria in our gut um, that are naturally there. And that may be influencing the weight gain as well. So right now we don't know, you know, what, what actually is the cause here. Um, and we definitely need more research to look into that. And I think that's one thing that this study is showing is, you know what, hey, there may be a little bit of caution need to be had here with artificial sweeteners, non-nutritive sweeteners, and let's take a closer look with more really high-quality research. Yeah, I, I mean, you're a, you're a nutrition expert. You know, I, I've, you, you heard in my preamble there that I've, you know, I've got my own, I don't want to say I'm a conspiracy theorist when it comes to uh, big food in North America, but I, I am a skeptic about how, government and and big food companies have been tied together on both sides of the border for many many decades and how uh food is marketed uh, has been marketed to us uh in Canada and the United States prim- uh, primarily um processed food right and uh and and I think we've been we've really been led down a bit of a garden path uh, in, in a sense and and I think we're only now Beginning to come around to the idea, Shannon, and see if you agree with me on this, that, that it's, it's whole foods that we should be looking, looking for. Like, forget about, you know, uh, carbs and fats and right kinds of fats and drilling any deeper than that right now. Like, just get, get onto some whole food for starters. Yeah, that is a huge step is getting back to the basics and eating whole nutrient rich foods and reducing intake of those highly processed foods that have very few nutrients for us, you know, and, and around that marketing, Jamie, you've got brought up a really great point. Um, right now, actually, there's a consultation that Canadians can go online with, at the Government of Canada and fill out, uh, take a look at their policies that they're coming up with around restricting unhealthy food and beverage marketing to children. Yeah. And as Canadians right now, we have a great opportunity to go in and go online and do this consultation and say, hey, you know what, you can't market those foods to our kids. Right, because there is um, research and evidence to show that that does marketing to, of food and beverage does impact how you eat and what you eat. Yeah, for sure. And you know, and another uh, thing that I'm I'm willing to stick my neck out on and say is that I actually believe that uh, immigration to Canada has been a really good thing for us in terms of our food intake because I think people who have come from other parts of the world to our country to establish new lives have brought with them some uh, pretty decent uh, eating habits and some and, and have opened our minds here in Canada to, um, to eating whole foods and, and, and eating properly as opposed to processed. Well, certainly it does allow us to have a much more varied experience when it comes to food, right? Yeah. It, for sure, I, you know, we're getting all sorts of different ethnic flavors and introduction to new foods, and we're getting markets popping up that are carrying foods that, you know, we in North America may not have experienced before, so that's that's super positive. On the other hand, for those people who are coming into this, our food, you know, um, arena, it can be impacting them negatively if they start to adopt those more westernized food habits yeah, as well. Yeah, right. So, they've, <laughs> al- they've always wanted to have that bucket of fried chicken that they c- couldn't get <laughs> w- where they were, you know, and it's yeah. on every corner here or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think there's there's pros and cons, you know, for both both parties there, for sure. Yeah. So, um, 
Uh, again, uh, let's let's get get down to some basic advice. Actually, before we do that, um, there there was some uh, some word that Canada is 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 going to revamp the Canada Food Guide. What have you got any information on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's currently in the process of being revised. So this is another policy that all Canadians, you know, if you feel strongly about it, Jamie, hop on hop online. Uh, if you go to the, uh, just Google Health Canada and uh, Canada's Food Guide, and you can go in right now and do an online consultation. And they're taking a look. They're co- completely revamping the food guide. So they're coming up with um, some guiding principles right now that take a look at exactly what you were saying, enjoying more um, nutrient-rich whole foods, cooking at home, um, and and reducing our intake of those highly processed um, foods that don't provide us with a lot of nutrients. And so that consultation is going on right now. People have until July 25th to go online and have your say, and I strongly encourage people to do that. You know, this is a great opportunity for Canadians to um, help to uh, shape that policy. And um, then they're going to be coming out with tools starting in 2018 around that guidance. So. I hope I hope they get rid of the, you know, you need X number of servings of this particular section of the pie chart um, and that kind of thing every day because people don't, I don't think that worked really well for anybody. Well, you know, the, the issue is that some people would have with that is that, you know, we're all so individual and the range needs to be quite, quite high yeah. uh, in terms of those servings to meet all those individual needs and people don't necessarily find that all that helpful. So right now what we're looking at are just the guiding statements that really help you to um, look towards choosing some of those more whole foods again. And and some of that guidance, I think, will be helpful for um, Canadians, uh, although they are looking at, you know, also um, telling us foods to avoid and to limit. And and I'd really rather see, you know, a, a more positive approach with, hey, you know, here are the great foods that we can enjoy and, and focus on those real whole foods versus you know, trying to nitpick on individual nutrients because I think that becomes confusing for for people to re- read on labels, for example, as well. Right. So I, it, let's again, let's go back to um, let's go back to some real uh, basics on on nutrition uh, right. without without using the word diet, without using the word weight loss or scales or obesity or anything like that. You're just you know we're just we're starting new today in terms of you know, establishing some, some new eating habits without a goal to, an open goal to lose weight or whatever, just, just to establish a better way of eating. What would your advice be to somebody? Well, you know what? I think there's a lot of research to suggest that if you follow a high quality diet over time, it's going to have health benefits beyond, like you said, beyond weight. So we're looking at increase, one of the best, best thing that you can do is increase your intake of vegetables and fruits. Right. I mean, hands down, you know, people talk about, well, I, sh- I shouldn't be eating this and I shouldn't be eating that. You know what? Let's focus on what you should be eating. And we know that Canadians are not getting enough vegetables and fruits. So bump up your vegetables and fruits, half your plate at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that's an easy thing, right? Instead of counting out servings, if you look at your plate and say, okay, half of my plate at least is filled with vegetables, then I'm on the right track. So more vegetables, more fruit, whole grains, pulses like those chickpeas and lentils, um, lean proteins, uh, nuts and seeds, lots of berries. All of those sorts of things are our basic um, high-quality foods that we should be building our diets around. 
Makes sense. Um, and, you know, some people think, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. It, it really isn't. If you, um, uh, th- there is a withdrawal period that, you, that you'll go through if, in breaking habits. But if you hang with it for a little while, um, and, and we're ta- I'm talking a week, a couple of weeks, uh, big changes can happen very, very quickly, right? They can, absolutely. And some of those small changes can have a huge impact. And what I suggest to people, if they look at it and they think, wow, that's totally overwhelming, I can't do it. Pick one or two things that you that you can do. So you know what? Cut out pop and artific- both artificially sweetened and sugar sweetened. Just cut it out and instead drink water. If that's the one thing that you can work on for the next two weeks, hooray for you. You know, that's an awesome thing. Yeah. Or maybe your thing is, you know, at lunch every day, I'm going to plan to have two servings of vegetables or I'm going to have a salad. And if that's the one thing you work on for the next two weeks, then that's awesome too. So pick small goals that that are very specific that you can measure and you know that you've been able to have some success with and that that's a really good like if you feel after two weeks you know what hey I did that I ate vegetables at lunch every day um, or I had water every day instead of pop when I was thirsty after two weeks you'll feel like you can tackle something else or after a few weeks some people might take a week some people might take four (laughs) weeks right like it's so individual but, you know, if you start small and have really specific, concrete goals instead of trying to, you know, do an overhaul, um, which might work for some people, but those small goals actually um, can help you to create that success over time, right? This is a lifestyle we're talking about, not a diet. It's not about restriction. It's about recreating a healthful habit. Absolutely. Shannon Crocker, uh, registered dietitian and uh, nutritionist and, and food guru. Uh, ShannonCrocker.com is the, is the website. Thanks for this today, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking to you real soon. Oh, thanks, Jamie. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.